0: Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Spreading the Word. I'm your host, Paul Basanti, and we're embarking on another series, just a short one this time, a two-part series that I've titled Fully God and Fully Man. The nature of Jesus Christ is one that has been confusing, hard to grasp, hard to agree to, and hard to... uh, really embrace for a lot of people in the world today and in years gone by and so the idea of this series is to investigate both the divinity of Christ and the historicity of Jesus as a man. That means him existing as a real person in time. So we're going to start, as the title implies, by investigating the divinity of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know that uh, from scripture Jesus existed and was ultimately crucified, but why was he crucified? Well, the Jewish leaders of the time believed that he was making blasphemous claims to being God. And the trial, quote unquote, that he's put through, more of a kangaroo court, to be honest, is one that ultimately looks to fix an accusation on Jesus that he blasphemed, which is an act punishable by death under Jewish law. And so what we look at today is a bunch of scripture passages that reinforce that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be in scripture and that the consequence of a crucifixion at the hands of the Romans that the Jewish people sought was the result of Jesus' claim to be God. So we're, we're looking at those two things, that Jesus was in fact claiming to be God and that we know that that claim can be true. This has a lot of applications for our life today and we'll get into those as we move on. But let's put that in our mind and know that we're talking about Jesus' historicity, his real existence as a man next week, but for now, let's dive into the divinity of Christ. Good morning, church. So those of you who know me will know that I listen to a lot of talk radio. And there's one advertisement that's on the air right now for an uh, automobile manufacturer that has a just-the-facts stick to their advertisement. And it, it goes something like this. Nostradamus made a lot of predictions about the future. Fact. Our vehicle comes with prepaid maintenance packages. Fact. Nostradamus didn't predict that we'd offer prepaid maintenance fact packages. Fact. By buying our car, you are out prophesying Nostradamus. Fact. So this ad, uh, as amusing as it is. Uh, coupled with some studying on the Old Testament of messianic prophecies got me thinking about the nature of Jesus Christ. So we're about to embark on a two-part series that I call Fully God and Fully Man. And this first part is about investigating the divinity of Christ. When it comes to our faith as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. This is a mystery to a lot of people and, and a stumbling block to a lot of people who don't believe. But my hope is that we can wrestle with some of those issues today and next week. And uh, we're going to jump around a little bit in scripture, but this, this session I want to focus specifically on the divine nature of who Jesus Christ was. So how was Jesus fully God? Let's start in the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 53 to 65. Now, this is right as Jesus is arrested and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, uh, which is the Jewish uh, tribunal evaluating legal matters. And so... In verse 53 it begins, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all of the chief priests, and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus, so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. At this, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death, and then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy. And the guards beat him and took him. So Jesus is before the Sanhedrin here. And this passage of Mark is, uh, is a look at the sort of kangaroo court that was set up to try and capture Jesus and, and convict him of something worthy in the Jewish law of death. And So the Jesus, uh, the Jewish leaders rather are trying to entrap Jesus in in saying something that's going to uh, convict him before all these people that that he is um, claiming to be something that they just can't believe is true. And so the chief priest asks, point blank, "Are you Christ?" Now, Christ is a, a term that means Son of the Blessed One. Uh, it's a it's a messianic title. The Blessed One. It's it's. Um, if you look at the Old Testament, there are titles that are given to this, this promised one of Israel who is going to restore God's people in an everlasting empire. And Jesus' response is unequivocal in the reaction that it generates from the high priest. Jesus uses the term I am that is a claim that God himself describes him I am that is that is the title that God uses for himself, and then he goes on to say something that is nothing short of blasphemy in the eyes of the sanhedrin. The phrase the Son of Man coming on the clouds, is one that we recognize from another passage in the Old Testament from Daniel. And this is, again, a messianic prophecy. This is a prophecy of of the Old Testament looking forward to a Messiah that is going to be the anointed one of God that is going to save his people. And so this refers back to a passage in Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to read that now chapter seven uh before we get into this there are are four beasts that are being described uh, there's there's a vision that daniel is having here and there, there are four beasts and they symbolize four different nation states uh the the first beast is a lion and that's representative of, of babylon there's a bear and that represents Medo persia there's a leopard and that represents greece and then there's a terrifying beast which represents Rome. So keep that in mind. The lion is Babylon, the bear is Medo-Persia, the leopard is Greece, and then the terrifying beast is Rome. In chapter 7, verse 9 of the book of Daniel, it says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authorities but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority Glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, and his dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, during this vision of the terrifying beast being slain and destroyed and and thrown into the blazing fire, i.e., Rome, we are introduced to someone referred to as the son of man. The son of man in this passage is given authority. He's given glory, he's given sovereign power. The son of man is worshiped and he will have an everlasting dominion. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This is not a prophecy of a individual, of a emperor, of a king, of a prime minister, of a president. This is the description of something, of someone, of some entity that exists beyond the linear understanding of time that we of people have. An everlasting dominion, kingdom will never be destroyed, he'll be worshipped with all authority, glory, and power. So Jesus appears... In the nation of Israel, during the reign of the terrifying beast, Jesus' appearance is prophesied in the book of Daniel to happen during the terrifying reign of Rome. Israel had many states to which it was a vassal. Babylon, Persia, and here with Rome. Israel is under the power of Rome. And so it's another identifying fact to the prophecy that's being made here in Daniel. The Son of Man isn't just some highly exalted heavenly being. Okay, we've talked about... uh, the book of Revelation in another class we've done recently where we're learning about all sorts of heavenly beings and the, this throne room is surrounded by these these four creatures and then there's all these wild and crazy descriptions of heavenly beings. And uh, if you get some time, read through that and you'll get a sense of what I'm talking about. There's all sorts of otherworldly descriptions of these these creatures in the heavenly realms that we just don't, understand. Is the Son of Man one of these? My argument is that no. The Son of Man is not just one of these heavenly beings. The Son of Man has his own unique position of authority amongst the entire heavenly realm. Let's take a look at the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, starting in one, verse 1, we see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. There's a lot to take in in this passage and we can spend weeks upon weeks on this passage alone. But I want to focus in on a few key things here. The word, the Greek word that's being used in this passage, in the original text, for the word, word, W-O-R-D, is logos. The phrase at the beginning of this passage, in the beginning, is a reference to Genesis. See, John's audience uh, had an A good working knowledge of the Old Testament. John was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And they had a strong understanding of the Old Testament. And so they would have known the reference in the beginning. So in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1. We see eight references. Eight times we come across the phrase. And God said. So, eight times we see that God's word, God's logos, was the instrument of creation. Out of nothingness, God utters a word, and there is creation that happens as a result. So, eight times it says, And God said, Let there be light. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered. And God said, let the land produce vegetation. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse." And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. And God said, let the land produce living creatures. And God said, let us make man in our image. God himself is the word, the logos that breathes life into us. Jesus is that word. So think again, the instrument of creation is the word of God. Through Jesus, through the logos, all things were made. Jesus was not only present at the time of creation, but he was instrumental. He was the thing, the tool that exerted creation out of nothingness. Jesus's miracles that we see in his ministry are further a testament to his divine authority over creation. Think about the miracles he performed in his ministry. He healed the sick. He rose the dead to life. He commanded nature. He calms the storms and curses fig trees. There's a nice passage in Mark about a fig tree that he curses that I came across recently. In Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 21, we see that uh, Jesus is... Uh, coming in and, and clearing the temple courts. But here's an interesting passage I found. Verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. I love Peter. I love how he's just this simple guy who gets amazed at these things. Uh, he's, He's someone I relate to a lot, but... Um, We see here, bookending, this this very familiar passage where where Jesus clears out the temple courts, an example of Jesus' authority and mastery over nature. Now, I may not have the greenest of thumbs, but I've never managed to kill a tree with words alone. Usually it's a result of my mother-in-law asking me to take care of her orchids while she's away and those wither and die because I overwatered them or I underwater them. But never with my words alone have I managed to kill a tree. All these things that Jesus does are in the presence of witnesses. It's hard to believe just reading it. But here's the thing. It was hard to believe back then too. That's why the Sanhedrin and the the people in the communities had a hard time believing that Jesus was who he said he was. That's the reason why it's hard to believe now, 2,000 some odd years later, that Jesus is God. That Jesus, a man who we know historically existed, we'll get into that next week, was who he claimed to be. If you're thinking in your mind that this doesn't make sense, how does this have any sort of realism in our science and our physics that we know today? Well, the fact is that a supernatural God would have supernatural powers over the rules of physics and science that we know now. And so it's not a logical paradox to appreciate that it's a difficult thing to understand. And we see that throughout all of the Gospels that people rejected Jesus because they had a hard time believing the things he was saying and claiming. But there is proof in Scripture that the things he did and said are true. The supernaturalness of everything we're reading is crazy to think about. Because it flies in the face of how we know the world works. But here's the thing. God has control over all of that. If he can break the laws, quote-unquote, of physics that we know today by speaking a word and creating matter out of nothing, then God has control over the natural order of things and whether or not a fig tree is going to live or die. What does all this mean? If we could come to terms with the fact that Jesus was, in fact, God, then we need to acknowledge that our sin caused God to suffer and be killed for us. We also need to acknowledge that our God was willing to lower himself to a frail and dying and crazy low state of being compared to the highest of highs in heaven, by becoming man. We need to acknowledge that God gave up his place on a throne to wash our feet, to feed the hungry, to heal the sick, to spend time with the lowly and cast out, to be shunned by his family, by his friends. What's our response then? If we're really, truly acknowledging this, then our response should be one of adoration, gratitude. We should be humble, but also honored that he would do this for us. We should have uh, an unbridled passion and enthusiasm for sharing this message with people in our lives. And we should have a willingness to sacrifice our own wants To glorify the one who did all this for us. For you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And there you have it. Well, what do you think? Was Jesus who he said he was? Were these claims, were these signs that he performed in front of hundreds and thousands of people, something that's verified in scripture, a a document that we'll get into a little bit next week has so much historical authenticity to it. Were these claims true? Are they hard to believe? Do they fly in the face of your scientific understanding of how the world works today? They should be difficult to believe. These are supernatural acts. Jesus was God and therefore had command over the physical world that he himself was instrumental in creating. When I think about that, that is a paradigm shift for me. It allows me to understand the difficulty that the people of his time, that his contemporaries had, in accepting the things that he said. If this were all true, it would, of course, be something that I would have difficulty with today, even if I saw these signs. But I can have faith in the scriptures that back everything up, and in the eyewitness testimonies, and in the extra-biblical evidence. And so I know and I can have confidence that Jesus is, in fact, God, and that he did come, and that he did lower himself to the place of a human man and serve us by washing our feet by feeding the hungry by healing the sick by spending time with those cast out of society and I can respond with that adoration gratitude and humility that I spoke of I hope this message is encouraging to you today and I hope that it helps you in your walk if you have not Committed your life to Christ, I encourage you to reach out to a church, reach out to us, reach out to someone to, to wrestle with these things. This is something that has eternal consequences, and if you don't do yourself the favor of investigating them so that you reach a conclusion of your own, then you're doing yourself a huge disservice. Don't take what I have to say for it, don't take what your, your priest or your pastor or your, your evangelist has to say for it. Don't take our word for it, but wrestle with these things yourself and look into these things yourself because it has eternal consequences for you. Again, I thank you all for joining me today and I pray that I can bless you in some way with these words and share what blessing they've been to me. I pray for encouragement in your walk this week. And if this has been helpful, please share it with others and let them know that there is hope to be found in Jesus and that we don't have to go through this alone. God bless everyone.